Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey, everybody, it's Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. Today, we've got Casey Johnson, who you need to know. He's brilliant. He's an expert in a really important topic. Among other things, he's been very closely following what's happening to young men on college campuses who are accused of sexual assault or harassment and the kangaroo courts that they are subjected to in trying to defend themselves. I'm really focused on this and I have been for many years in part because I do think it's so important to have a fair process, both for the woman and the man. And the less fair it is for the man who gets accused, the fewer women who are going to be believed because people no longer have faith in the process. So I think it's equally important for all parties involved that we have a fair process, that due process is afforded the accused in these proceedings, and it hasn't been. The stories we're going to go through today are going to make your your hair curl up. I mean, it's it's upsetting. It's infuriating. It makes you want to do something about it, but it doesn't get talked about enough. So I've been covering this for years. Casey's helped me. Um, He's actually an American history professor at Brooklyn College and City University of New York, the Graduate Center. He he went to Harvard, then University of Chicago, then back to Harvard. Uh, So this guy is very smart and a college professor. So not only has he been studying what's happening on college campuses, but he's been on college campuses for most of his adult life. We'll get into all the reasons why I think you should listen to him. Here's what's happening. The procedures afforded to accused young men under Barack Obama were non-existent. They basically, you got accused, you got convicted. Uh, And it was terrifying and really unjust. And then Trump came in and with DeVos, they reversed it and they got a lot of the procedures restored. And now Joe Biden has said that, uh, and I quote, any backstepping when it comes to Title IX, this is a statute that's at issue, we'll get into it, is unacceptable, anything. And that they are going to restore the procedures that were in place under the Obama-Biden administration. So here we go again, one step forward, two steps backward. And if you know anybody who's headed to college in the next eight years, or just just care about justice and the, and the procedure in this country, you have got to hear this interview, all right? But first, it seems like every day, everywhere, practically everyone is connected on their devices, right? It's kind of annoying, actually. I miss looking at each other. And then I actually look at a bunch of people and I'm thinking, eh, I'm not missing much. (laughs) Anyway, everyone's doing it. In fact, the average person was connected almost seven hours a day last year. Oh, that's a lot. And 64% of adults admit to taking online risks for the sake of convenience, right? You don't make sure you're super safe before you click on that website. Well, you should. And all that browsing, the sharing, banking, and shopping, it can make life easy, but it can also expose your personal information and make you vulnerable to cyber criminals. There's a lot to your digital life that can put you at risk. And that's why Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to help keep yourself safe with device security to help block hackers from devices, a VPN for online privacy, and LifeLock identity theft protection to help you keep what's yours, yours. No one can prevent every crime. You know that, cybercrime or otherwise. And identity theft, monitor every single transaction, every single business. That's not what they're promising. But With the all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock, you can be less worried about becoming another statistic. Why wouldn't you give yourself that peace of mind? Give yourself a fighting chance out there. Save 25% or more off your first year at norton.com slash MK. 
That's Norton.com slash MK to save 25%. Casey Johnson, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. I told my team from like the day we launched this show, you know who I want in this program? Casey Johnson. Um, You've done amazing work, amazing work, staying on top of what has happened when it comes to due process and our universities. This has been like, this is stuck in my craw for years now, because even though many people associate me in some way with the Me Too movement, and I, I acknowledge I had a role that I make no apologies for in that movement. I'm I'm also a lawyer and I believe in due process. I believe it it's essential to the rights of those who are accused and those doing the accusing. The system doesn't work unless it's fair for both parties and it it hasn't been. So Betsy DeVos gets in there and tries to make it fair and Joe Biden's trying to undo what she did. So we're going to get into all of that. We're going to go through some cases. Let's start at the beginning. Just so the audience understands, what is Title IX? Title IX is a federal statute which was passed in 1972 um, at, at sort of a, an early period of, uh, of feminism. It it's, it's goes through Congress at roughly the same time Congress is considering the ERA, and it requires all schools that receive uh, federal funds, which is basically every school in the country because federal funds under the law are defined as if you get student, student aid assistance or Pell Grants or anything like that, it counts. So basically every college in the country um, is required not to discriminate in their educational program on the basis of sex. Very short statute. Um, the debate was relatively perfunctory in Congress. It was it was overwhelmingly approved on a bipartisan basis. It was signed by President Nixon. Um, and for its first 25 years, and I think to a certain extent even today, it was best known for you know what is to me one of the great public policy successes in higher education of the last half century, the growth of female athletics. And so you know it was it was a, a system that required schools to give uh, colleges. To give um, you know female athletes the same rights that they gave to male athletes. If you had you know, lots of male teams, you had to have lots, lots of female teams. But it was seen as a kind of balancing agent. It was you know, in, in 1972. There was no suggestion that it was going to be applying to campus disciplinary uh, processes at all. Mm-hmm. I remember there was a line in that movie, The American President, where somebody was talking to Michael Douglas's fake president character and saying something like, you know. The president said, you know, I think Title IX has been in effect for a long time now, Bob. And the other guy goes, I know, sir, but they're really trying to enforce it now. (laughs) (laughs) Lamenting, you know, the push for female athletics at colleges, which, of course, we we all want. I mean, now, in retrospect, it's easy to see that was important. We needed it. It's good. No. And and then once it got expanded to, okay, it also includes the right not to be sexually harassed and assaulted on campus. Okay, good, because no one wants that either. And for too long. Like when I went to college back in, you know, the dark ages, 1988 to 1992 <laughs> at Syracuse, there were a lot of sexual assaults and and rapes and date rapes, which we were just getting familiar with, that in which the accused, maybe maybe the, the pendulum was too far in his favor, right? Like the women had right. a very uphill battle trying to prove these claims. There was almost an assumption that um, they were nuts and the standard was high. And most of them were just too afraid to do it at that time because they knew that the deck was stacked against them. So, okay, all in good faith to try to correct this. I'll, I'll, I'll give everybody that. They wanted to correct the imbalance. But then, like most things, we overcorrected. So the Obama administration comes in there. And what they did, I, I don't even know if I can say this, in, is, this is in good faith because this should have been obvious from the start that this was fraught. Uh, in April 2011, 
they issue what's called a dear colleague letter. And it was issued by Joe Biden. So just in case people have any doubts about where his his intention intention is here. Um, and tell tell the audience what that did. The April 11th, dear colleague or dear, dear friend letter that went out to the colleges. Right. So it, 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 this is a document which is which is issued through the Office for Civil Rights. So that's the the office in the Department of Education that um, uh, enforces uh, uh, Title IX. And it built off the premise which you just talked about that colleges have both a legal and a moral obligation to address sexual assault because it it constitutes discrimination in education. If a you know female student who has been sexually assaulted and then has to go to class with her with her rapist, that's going to deny her an opportunity to uh, you know to receive an education. So no one really denies that that's uh, you know, that that's necessary for schools to do. What the dear colleague letter did, however, was as guidance. And so this this was this was a document that was just written by the education department. It didn't go out to the public for comment, didn't go out to universities for comment, it didn't go out for Congress uh, to comment, um, to, to require colleges essentially to, to place a thumb on the scales in favor of students who filed complaints. And along with guidance that was issued in 2014, a longer document called the question and answer document, uh, the Dear Colleague letter required of, again, basically all schools, to adjudicate sexual assault through a series of procedures that made it much more likely that students would be found uh, guilty. And so schools were required to use a preponderance of the evidence uh, standard. Many schools had used a higher standard as called a clear and convincing, which is basically 75% or so certain preponderance is 50% and, uh, and a feather. It required schools to allow accusers to have the right to appeal a not guilty uh, finding. So, you know, it's, which in the criminal process would be considered double jeopardy. So you have a system mm-hmm. where a student can, can be found not guilty originally, but then is, is, you know, is subsequently found guilty a second time. It required schools to train their adjudicators, and this was one of the most troubling aspects of the um, uh, of the of the provision. You would think, what could possibly be a problem with that? Well, the the, the training that was used was called trauma informed uh, uh, training, which which gave to the adjudicators a, a sense that basically any behavior would be consistent uh, with guilt, and it was training that was not shared with the accused student. So again, in the criminal justice process, this would be the equivalent of say, if the prosecutor was able to give the jury six hours of training that made them more likely to return a guilty finding, and never even had to share that information with uh, with the defense, being an obviously unfair process. And then finally, and maybe most importantly, uh, the guidance strongly discouraged and in effect prohibited under the term, uh, the procedures that most schools use, the right of an accused student to cross-examine his accuser. And in these cases where, you know, not all the time, but, but but most of the time, there are no other witnesses apart from the two students who were involved in in, in the incident. The ability to ask questions of you know of, of each side and probe their weaknesses is critical. I mean, the Supreme Court has described cross examination as uh, you know, as the best tool to to pursue the truth. And the the goal in the Obama policy was to ensure that didn't happen. And the, the premise of the policy it was not well explained when it was issued. Um, the the only factual premise was was an assertion. That, uh, that that hundreds of thousands of female students every year are sexually assaulted, which again, on campus, which is true, would, would suggest that the typical campus is a very, very dangerous place. No, um, it's not true. It's not true. Um, and then, the, but, the, but the subsequent uh, 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 rationalizations for the policy were, were really, I think, quite interesting. And, and the core premise, I think, of the Obama approach 
was the, was to create a system in which victims of sexual assault would feel comfortable reporting uh, their offense, which of course, again, is something we all want, um, but that the best way to do that would be to create a system in which anyone who files a sexual assault complaint would know going in that they were never going to be asked tough questions about their allegation. And that's sort of a mm-hmm. system that turns turns everything on its head. It presumes the the guilt of the of the accused. Right. I mean, I, I always go back to this, and this is how I first got to know you, but you take a look at what happened in that Duke lacrosse case. What if what if no tough questions had been asked of the accuser, Crystal Mangum, in that case? Then we'd have three boys still in prison for a crime they didn't commit. And that was a case in which uh, these three young men, in case we have, you know, very young audience members, which I know we do, um, back in 2005 or so, uh, who were accused of raping, gang raping, a young woman who was a, an exotic dancer who came to their lacrosse party one day, and it was all made up. They, they got charged. Their whole lives were at risk. And she made the whole thing up with the help of a corrupt DA who was running for reelection in a city that was half black, half white. She was the alleged victim was black. The, the accused were white. There was class. There was race. There was privilege at issue. And he saw an opportunity to run in a hotbed case and get himself another term as DA and increase his pension. That guy's since been disbarred and spent a day in jail for his behavior. Uh, and she wound up going to jail much later for attempted murder, I think, of her boyfriend yes, way correct. after the fact. Correct. Okay. So anyway, my point is Casey wrote a book about this. He was thanked publicly by the three defendants in that case for being open-minded to their innocence. Not, not you know, open-minded to anything, right? But most of the people reporting on that case were not open-minded to the possibility of innocence. And you were, to your credit. And um, so that's your background. So you, you're, you're taking a hard look at this evolution um, in the law and, in, and on college campuses and how we're going another way, how we're, we're back now. Forget presumption of innocence for the accused. It's, it's presumption of guilt. Right. And this is, you know, the lacrosse case was really the reason that I started to focus on this issue in the aftermath of the Dear Colleague letter, because I think one of the assumptions behind the Dear Colleague letter, um, and this is, you know, if you listen to to Biden's speeches on this at the time, Biden, as you as you've commented, was the person who introduced the Dear Colleague letter and 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 since Biden seems to operate under the, the the premise, and I think the Obama people did as a whole, that campuses were back in in the dark ages, you know, in the seventies and eighties, where everyone just wanted to sweep sexual assault un, under the rug. And the Duke Lacrosse case, you know, was was a case where you you could not have come up with more obviously innocent students. You know, the, the there there was one of the guys who was accused um, was you know in a great stroke of luck for him, happened to be on video at an ATM machine like two miles mm-hmm. away from the party at the time he was alleged rape. And the, the joke was that even in Durham, the laws of physics do apply and you can't be in two places at uh, at once. Um, and and yet on, on the Duke campus, the president of Duke, uh, outspoken members of the uh, of the faculty, you know, issued statements presuming these guys' uh, uh, guilt. So it was a reminder of the way, I think, in which the different population of the uh, of the faculty i mean it's no secret that um, that most uh, co- college campuses especially elite college campuses lean very far to the left on on issues of race and class and, and gender 
um, created a, a, a campus culture in which uh, students were, were presumed guilty. And so when this Obama guidance came out, um, universities you know, were, were more than happy to implement it, oftentimes even more zealously uh, than the Obama people were demanding as a result of the guidance. Mm. You've got a situation where the federal government was sort of pushing at an open door and you know, empowering uh, you know, you know, true believers on campus who really saw their mission as rectifying injustices of the past by punishing innocent people in, in the present. And you know, this is a, that's a kind of system that's never going to work. Oh, it's, uh, it has such parallels with what we're seeing right now with race and the messaging around critical race theory. Speaking of, you know, punishing the present for the past, people who had, you know, nothing to do with slavery or Jim Crow or being treated like they were they were the ones behind it. So, yeah, to your point, politically, it was appealing to the professors and the administrators who are being given this dear colleague letter. Can I just ask you before we get to it, though, into more? Can we talk for a minute about why there there really aren't hundreds of thousands of sexual assaults on these campuses every year and these numbers? And believe me, believe me, I'm very open minded to women claiming sexual assault and harassment. I am. I've lived it. I get it. But we have to stick to reality and understand that some people manipulate these numbers because they themselves have an agenda. And that's what's happened with these numbers here. The numbers are not as large as as claimed. And why is that? Right. So I, as you say, there is absolutely no question that, um, you know, if, if you, and this, all the data here is consistent, that the people who are, who are experience sexual assault the most in American society are women age 18 to 24. Alcohol is frequently involved. And so, you know, ca- campuses, it's not as if campuses are immune from, uh, from this uh, approach. Um, the, pr- the problems here are, are sort of twofold with these, uh, with these surveys. The first is that they tend to define sexual assault. Uh, they never ask a student, you know, were you sexually assaulted or were you raped? They instead describe behavior and they describe it in very, very broad ways, often uh, times using phrases like unwanted uh, sex, which maybe mean you know, sex that you just didn't really want, but you never really communicated that. Um, and it's, so there, there's, a, there's a problem with, with, uh, with definition. The, the second is that the, these surveys tend to focus uh, you know, the, the most, uh, uh, the largest of these, which was done by the, by the Association of American Universities, which is called the AAU, tend to focus on residential uh, uh, colleges. But the, the, the majority of American students do not attend, you know, Harvard or Yale or Lafayette or Lehigh, you know, four-year residential liberal arts colleges or, you know, Ivy League tier one universities. Um, instead, the, you know, they attend schools like where I now teach at, you know, Brooklyn College, which is a non-residential school, or they might be part-time or they, and, and for these students, you know, they're, they're not experiencing sexual assault any differently than the general population uh, uh, would. So it was, it was, you know, th- these, these were numbers that were focused on a particular kind of campus and that it was generalized out to assume that it would include uh, include everyone. And so the result, you know, the, the, the figures that the Obama administration used was a claim that one in five female undergraduates would be sexually assaulted at their time in college. That would translate, there are, there are roughly 10 million female undergraduates. That So that would rough, you know, translate to, to roughly t- 2 million uh, uh, sexual assaults every five years on campus. And if that's true, that would suggest that a typical college campus is by far the most dangerous place, you know, in the United States. Mm-hmm. And yet these advocates never called for increased police presence or in, increased enforcement or anything like this. And so even, you know, even the, 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 the truest of true believers in this area 
by the policies that they recommended, it was clear they didn't really believe the figures either. Well, and it, it's not just unwanted sex to go back to that. It, it's unwanted touching. So, I mean, that's really ambiguous, right? If you're going to lump in unwanted touching with every instance of sexual assault, you're going to run your numbers right up. I mean, some of us remember that as college. A guy takes a shot. You know, he's he, he's making out with you. You don't want to make out with him. You push him off. That's the end of that. He gets the hint. You walk away. No harm done. Under today's standards, you could you could list that as a yes, as a as a a sexual harassment, potentially sexual assault, because it's an unwanted touching. Correct. It, 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 in these surveys, that uh, you know, an, an instance like this would be would be sexual assault. And so, yeah, consider say at a party, um, people are dancing. Um, one person brushes up against uh, another. It, it may not even have been an intentional brush up, but the you know the other person considered that to be unwanted. You know, she could answer honestly in these surveys that was sexual assault. But the average person, when they hear one in five women have been sexually assaulted on campus, you know, they're thinking quite reasonably that you know what we're talking about here is the commonly understood definition culturally and legally of sexual assault. And of course, that's not that's not what we're talking about at all. And it also doesn't make any allowance for another very real dynamic on college campuses in particular, which is the Sunday morning regrets. You know, they, they, you have it about alcohol. Um, and a lot of women have it about hookups, about guys. They nine times out of 10, alcohol was involved. They had too much. They made a decision when it comes to fooling around with a guy that they'd like to have back. And too many times we've seen that translated into it was non-consensual at the, in the moment it happened because women feel shame about it the next day. And, and women do need to be very careful about making sure you know, of the difference between non-consent in the moment and just deep regret after the fact about what was at the time a consensual encounter. Correct. And, and you know, there's, a, there's a retroactive withdrawal of consent in, in some of these these cases. And and you know, there is no typical campus sexual assault case, but in, in, you know, in, in the litigation in this area on both sides, you know, the, the, these, these are cases that often involve both parties have been drinking. They often have, you know, only vague recollections of what they occurred. Um, in, in most of these cases, you know, these are things that the parties probably, both students probably would not have done if they were fully sober. But you know, the nature of campus, you know, social and cultural life is that students often drink and sometimes they drink too much and, you know, they, they do things that they would, would not do if, if they were if they were sober. But that's a learning lesson that you know, that's not in and of itself sexual assault. Now, of course, you can exactly. drink to excess where, you know, you're 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 passed out or you no longer have the ability to to say no. I mean, but that that's a completely different standard. Well, let's pause there. Let's pause on that, because what is <laughs> You can rape somebody who was conscious um, while the rape was happening if she is incapacitated. And um, that's what we saw in that case. God, what was the case, Casey, where the woman was taken out behind the dumpster on the college campus? Yes, the, the um, Stanford case. Stanford. Yeah, the Stanford case. Okay. So that that was the issue there, that she was alive, but she that woman is actually basically unconscious. And she was incapacitated. You can drink so much that you're basically incapacitated. But what about a woman who is just just drunk, drunk versus incapacitated? How do they draw that line? And th- and this is this is in, you know, it, the the one of the critical problems in the campus uh, uh, process. In in a criminal justice process, that line can be relatively easily drawn. You know, during the investigation, but during trial through cross examination, you can sort of ask ask the the complainant. 
you know, how many, how many, you know, what did you have to drink? When did you have to drink? You can establish a, a kind of base alcohol level. At, at, on, on campus, however, what is frequently done in these cases is simply to blur the distinction between uh, drunk and incapacitated or you know, even more troublingly, to allow um, the the accusing student the opportunity to to simply say that she was incapacitated without any evidence thereof. There, there's this this famous case that occurred at George Washington University in in D.C., where the student was found guilty on the basis of of, of incapacitation, even though the, the that the accuser was incapacitated, even though the accuser's own story was that uh, she she had sex, she didn't she didn't like it, and so she said that. She she raced out the room and then and went ran down eight flights of stairs. Now, someone who can run down eight flights of stairs is not incapacitated, um, mm-hmm. and yet schools uh, schools you know frequently blur these uh, blur these lines to to the extent almost where you know if 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 the accusing student has had any alcohol at all, that can be uh, a, a, you know, a, a definition of incapacitation. So this this is that's a real insane. problem in the campus. Yeah, it's it's that it's is absurd. insane. It's so unfair. I mean, that this is this is why we have young men and women now. I mean, the men in particular asking women to sign consent forms before they fool around at all because they're terrified. I'm not drunk. I I have full capacity. I can hear. I can see. I can touch my. The, you know, my index finger to the tip of my nose, you know, like they're basically doing field sobriety tests before right, right, right. they get in bed together. Right. Um, now I laugh, but I'm 100% going to train my boys to do all of that. Back to Casey in just one second. But first, let's talk about masks. They're getting mandatory now. All the federal property, the buses, the terminals, and so on and so forth. And did you know that the feds, like federal agents, have basically been deputized to potentially arrest you? You could face criminal penalties if you don't wear them. That's insane, but it's happening. So look, get a mask. All right. And if you're going to put it on, might as well get one that works and looks good. And that's where Armbrust USA comes in. These are your people. You're no longer allowed to wear on these federal properties, gaiters, bandanas, and cloth masks. And, you know, they're not going to get the country back to work the way things are going anyway. So you got to look into Armbrust. For 20 years, this country has been outsourcing our strategic manufacturing of PPE to China. It's a problem. And that's why when the pandemic hit, the Chinese Communist Party hoarded all the vast quantities of supplies, including masks, and our doctors and nurses and frontline workers were endangered, not to mention the rest of us. Americans came together, they helped each other, they sewed masks at homes and so on. But that was never supposed to be a long-term solution, and now in many federal places, it's not allowed. So, Armbrust USA, they stepped in to fill the gap in America's strategic manufacturing, and now they're here for you. They got a factory down in Texas. They're producing millions of FDA-listed ASTM Level 3 surgical masks for doctors, nurses, and frontline workers. And now we're not in the midst of a PPE shortage, but now more than ever, when we can see the end of the tunnel, you got to buy a real surgical mask that will provide real protection for you and your family. So go to DontShutDownMaskUp.com. Use the coupon code MK to save 20% on your order of a pack of Armbrust USA masks. DontShutDownMaskUp.com. They're lightweight, breathable, hypoallergenic, FDA-listed, made in America. Don't buy the cheap knockoff ones. Get the real deal. Don't shut down. MaskUp.com today. Things were going nuts. Hundreds, hundreds of lawsuits started to get filed against colleges and universities by typically young men who had been subjected to these kangaroo courts claiming that their due process rights were violated and they started winning. 
they started winning Correct. that th- these were blatant violations of the constitution of these kids rights and as that was happening obama's term was coming to an end and trump won and i people ask me all the time like what if was trump all bad did trump do good things and i think this is one of the best things he did um i think any fair minded person could see that this this was an improvement of our system where he and betsy devos launched an overhaul of this system and they did it in an orderly um procedurally correct sound way trying to restore a fair process for all on college campuses they took input from victims rights groups from defense attorneys they they didn't you know they they were conscious not to overcorrect back the other way um and now and we'll go through all of this but now joe biden's he wants to undo it all he wants to revert back to the obama era system where cross-examination is no longer available. Discovery is no longer available. You can't have a lawyer in the proceeding with you. And the person, quote, trying your case more than likely is some sexual assault advocate who's got her thumb on the scale. She's not, this is not an impartial arbiter. Do I have it about right? You do. You do. Yeah. I mean, okay. I think that I, I, I would agree. And I agree with your description of, 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 of the Trump policy. I mean, you know, this was not an administration that did many uh, things carefully. Um, but in this area, they did. And I think they did because of DeVos. I mean, you know, De- De- DeVos was a very controversial education secretary. But, but her, you know, her handling of, the, of this issue was, was very deliberate. She went through the, the, the normal processes in, in a way that the Obama people did not. She, you know, the, the, the regulations that they issued um, took into account court rulings in this area. There have been almost 200 favorable rulings for accused students. And people, you know, outside of education, you, I think in some ways can struggle to understand how how unusual that is. Courts tend to be really deferential, for for understandable reasons, to colleges on disciplinary cases because basically federal judges don't want to get in the habit of of saying that a student getting a B rather than a B plus is a due process violation where they can run off to to federal court and you know and, and mm-hmm. try to get the the judge involved. So that 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 students were winning these lawsuits. It's there. There's no comparable um, you know ep- episode for this in, in American higher education in the last 25 or 30 years. And, and DeVos's approach was basically to say, look, Title IX is an equity law. It requires fair treatment for all students, just as you can't discriminate against female students who are filing sexual assault complaints. You also can't discriminate against male students who are accused of sexual assault complaints. And colleges have to treat these cases uh, fairly. So she, you know, she required schools over, over the vitriolic, ferocious opposition of most colleges and universities to create fair systems in which, you know, students would get at both students, accused or unaccused, would get access to the evidence. There would be cross-examination done through their advocates. So you wouldn't have direct cross-examination by the parties, which which she uh, DeVos worried would be too uh, would be too traumatizing. And also where uh, the 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 hearing panels would be trained fairly, and schools would have to publish that training to make sure that they weren't introducing secret biases in the uh, in the training process. So you know one of the intriguing things is that the number of lawsuits since the regulations have been adopted have plunged because accused students are now getting fair treatment thanks to the the existing uh, the existence of these uh, of these regs. Mm-hmm. She uh, the new process re- reemphasizes the presumption of innocence and equitable Correct. treatment. 
um, that gives school the flexibility to choose which evidentiary standard they're going to use, preponderance of the evidence, which is, as you say, 50 plus a feather versus clear and convincing, which is more like 75 percent chance it happened. Um, it 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 suggests we should adhere to the more narrow definition of sexual harassment uh, that's been put out by the Supreme Court. Unwelcome Correct. conduct that's so severe, pervasive and objectively offensive that that a college must have live hearings and cross examination. But but it but it recognizes that within that definition, there there would be um, sexual assault, dating violence, domestic violence, stalking, none of which would have to meet a severe and pervasive standard. So to me, I read this as this is a woman trying bending over backwards to be fair to both sides and also said that the schools cannot impose discipline on accused students until the end of the case, because these people were basically getting their scholarships yanked, getting all F's in their in their classes because they were bounced off of campus. Their lives were effectively ruined before any judgment came down. And she fixed that. Correct. Correct. Yes. So, okay, so so the victims rights groups all along were promising to challenge. But unlike unlike Obama, who just did this through a letter, she did this by what she did something that was sort of more lasting and tough to undo. Correct. She she you know, she she went through the, this this federal law called the Administrative Procedures Act, which gives to federal agencies the authority to make regulations which have the same effect of of law. But to make regulations, you have to draft the regulations. You then publish them. You solicit uh, comment from the public. There were there were more than one hundred thousand comments on the proposed uh, regulations, and DeVos's team adjusted the regu- the final regulations in response to these uh, comments. Which means that the regulations, when they were issued, they were issued earlier in in twenty twenty, carry the force of law. They cannot simply be withdrawn with the stroke of a pen um, by uh, by President Biden, which is clearly what he would like to do. I mean, he said in the, in the campaign that his goal would be to eliminate these, uh, these very quickly. Now, the, these, the, the regulations were challenged by, uh, there were four lawsuits filed against them, uh, two by victims' rights organizations, um, one of which in, in a moment of everlasting shame for the organization was represented by the ACLU coming out against uh, a campus due process. Um, oh, wow. And the other two, yeah, it's, it's, it's unimaginable. And the other two were lawsuits filed by coalition by New York State and then by a coalition of blue states in D.C. All of those lawsuits so far have been uh, have been unsuccessful, although the Biden administration uh, suggested putting one of the lawsuits on on hold for 60 days while the administration reconsiders its approach to the rule. And that it's it's clear that the, the administration is going to try to move away from the rule as quickly as they can. But they cannot simply abolish it with the with the stroke of a pen. They'll have to go back mm-hmm. through a notice and comment process themselves. Oh, it's like we 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 create one system, then we undo it and create the other. And at least it's not an executive order, which he could just undo with an eraser. Um, but Precisely. he's determined. I mean, he is determined. And it's it's kind of crazy when you think about the fact that he himself has been accused. I know I interviewed Tara Reid uh, very publicly of of a disgusting, a disturbing act um, that he just has no appreciation for due process. You know, I think Tara Reid would tell you, tell you due process is important too. Uh, but he's too interested in pandering right now. And it's, it's going to hurt a lot of young men. It's going to hurt them. It's going to ruin their lives. That's what we saw in the Obama years. People were having their lives ruined or nearly ruined. And this is where I'd like to get into a couple of the cases. Um, let's just start with what happened to Grant Neal, because that was the case that stayed with me. That one in the Amherst one that you and I discussed one time in the Kelly file. 
Grant Neal, young African-American athlete at Colorado, Colorado State, GPA of almost 3.7, um, had a sexual encounter with his girlfriend, which neither one of them thought was rape. As I recall the facts, there was a, a portion of the sexual encounter where he didn't have on a condom and she wanted him to have on a condom. And so he, he waited a, a little and then he put one on. And she was convinced by the roommate, it's, correct me if I'm getting this wrong, that, that, that those moments were non-consensual and rape, essentially rape. And the school agreed, right? Do I, correct me if I'm wrong. Correct. And there, there, there was one additional factor in this case. The roommate then reported this to uh, 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 people in the athletic staff at Colorado State. And they were the people who filed the the allegation against Neil. So you had almost a game of telephone, where an initial event that both parties considered to be uh, consensual was redefined by this this conversation between the student and her roommate, and then was subsequently redefined by a kind of third party allegation. And the university, which used a system, this you know this this was a case that occurred during the Obama years. There was no hearing. Um, there was no opportunity for for Neil to challenge his. The, the evidence. And this was a weird case where there was really no accuser because the people right. filing the accusations had no firsthand or even secondhand knowledge of uh, of the allegations. The university in this case, there, there, I think there were two things that, that were going on in the Neal case that make it so, so important. The first is the university was afraid of the Obama people cracking down and launching an investigation of them if this came out. And second, th- this is an area, these, these campus Title IX cases, in which there are disproportionate numbers numbers of cases uh, where the accused student is African-American, especially cases where there is a, a, a white accuser and an African-American accused student. And in virtually any other context, that kind of fact pattern would, would for very good reasons, really concern liberals, civil, libertari- uh, civil libertarians, but, but here it's just sort of been, uh, it's, it's sort of been ignored. Um, and you know, Neil was lucky; he got a good lawyer. Um, the 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 case, you know, he 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 drew a pretty good judge in who considered the case fairly in Colorado. Um, and it was an important ruling that that you know, said that the, the university handled this totally unfairly. And after that ruling came out, the university uh, settled. Yeah, of course. Thank goodness, because poor Grant lost his scholarship. He lost his place on the on the team. He had his life ruined over an allegation, as you say, even the accuser, the woman who should have been the accuser, was saying wasn't true. She she came out and said, he is not a rapist. He is not a criminal. I was not raped. And still his life was ruined. That's how messed up these procedures were. And as you rightly point out, the people who have taken a look at these uh, at these violations of due process say they do have a disproportionate impact on students of color who get accused more, that black students are four times as likely as white students to file lawsuits alleging a due process uh, rights violation. And so we we do need, this is one situation where we really do need to be paying attention to the disparate impact and people should be jumping up and down about it, um, trying to right a historical wrong. Absolutely. But, but, but they're not. So Grant, when he came on the Kelly file, he had filed the lawsuit, but it wasn't yet resolved. What they settled? 
they settled. And that is that is the common practice in these cases. Uni- universities uh, generally they'll at, they'll lose at an initial stage of the um, uh, of, of the litigation, and they desperately do not want to go to trial uh, because when they do, they they've uniformly lost in this area. And the problem for universities when it goes to trial is it exposes their dirty laundry, which they don't want. Um, you know, which they don't want laid out. But a student mm-hmm. like Neil, you know, this, you know, he he ultimately got a settlement. Presumably the settlement was a pretty favorable one. Otherwise he wouldn't have settled. But he can't get his college experience back. He can't get his athletic scholarship back. You know, th- that That's just gone. Mm-hmm. Right. And now he can't talk about it because these things always have gag orders. In them and, and So you're no longer allowed to explain to people what happened to you. Um, okay. Let's talk about Amherst. This is one of the of all the stories I covered while I was at Fox News, this is one of the ones that stands out to me because it was such a travesty of justice. Um, do you, can you give us a general overview of what happened in the Amster, in the Amherst case? This is just it, it's a shocking case. Uh, th- so this is a case where you have an accused male student who was drinking very heavily one night on a weekend. His his girlfriend was out of town. Um, the the roommate of his girlfriend encountered him. They started making out. She invited him back to his uh, to their room. Um, she performed oral sex on him. Um, she immediately seems to have recognized that what she did was wrong, and she started texting friends, uh, saying that she needed to come up with a good lie because otherwise, if it got out that she had seduced her roommate's boyfriend, she would lose all of their uh, uh, her friends. It did get out what she had done. She did lose all of her friends. And she migrated into a, a campus victim's rights group. And 18 months later, she filed a Title IX complaint saying that she had been sexually uh, assaulted. Uh, Amherst investigated this. They never looked at the text. Um, they found him uh, guilty. The text that she had sent that evening, which contradicted her story in multiple ways beyond just the, the, the assertion that she was searching for a lie to explain what happened. The texts were discovered. This is one of the the, the, the most incredible facts in any of these cases to me, um, by the accused student's former girlfriend, who was furious at what he had done, you know, for, for reasons that I think anyone can understand, but was also furious at the accuser because, and, and she put this in an affidavit, she said, this is just, this is a travesty for real victims for the, the accuser here to, um, uh, to do this. So, so th- the the accused student has all of these texts, which are which are wholly exonerating texts. He presents them to Amherst, and he says, "Look, you have to re- redo your your approach." And Amherst's response in in subsequent uh, court filings was was that wasn't the case because they said under Amherst policy that texts from an accuser would only be relevant if they came after the accusing student had decided that she was sexually assaulted. This is just an extraordinary way of, of, of doing things. So you, you have a situation where you have all of this exculpatory evidence and Amherst said it doesn't matter because she she later described that she was, was sexually assaulted. So he was expelled um, and he was expelled, in, interestingly, by name. So he was identified by name in a campus-wide email at Amherst. So mm-hmm. everyone you know, knew that he was identified as, as, as a rapist, and he sued. Um, and his lawyer is, is one of the very best lawyers in this area, a guy named Max Stern, who practices out of Boston. Um, and what, what Stern did was he recognized he had an, he had an innocent uh, client. Um, and this was a case where not only was the client innocent, but under Amherst's definition of sexual assault, the accusing student in this case actually had sexually assaulted the male 
um, because right. under her definition, uh, under her uncontroverted testimony, she brought him back to the room. She initiated oral sex on him. She then said she withdrew consent in the middle of the oral sex, but he was incapacitated. He was experiencing an alcoholic blackout for the entire time. Amherst ignored all that. Um, so it went it went to federal court. The, 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 the court issued a preliminary ruling, uh, green lighting basically the entire uh, lawsuit and Amherst very quickly settled thereafter for, for reasons that were, that were easily understandable. But th- this was an extraordinary case where, again, if anything, the victim in this case uh, the, uh, of sexual assault was the male student. And it was a case where you have you have a college. The, the reason that colleges and universities exist in, in our country is that they're supposed to be be beacons of the truth. They exist to pursue the truth. And here the college was saying, we don't care about the truth. We just care about getting this guilty finding and kick, kicking this, this guy out. Um, and this was another student of color case. So the, the accuser in this case was white. Um, the accused student was Asian American. Um, and yet there, there was no concern about racial disparities on, uh, on campus. Oh, this is like just hearing it is making my blood boil. The looking back at some of those texts. So this is a girl who goes in there at the hearing and says, like, I was I was sexually assaulted. I I was raped. And, you know, my activist friends have helped me understand, um, you know, I was his victim. And what what came out, thanks to her ex-friend, her ex-roommate, who was, you know, the, the girlfriend of the accused at the time, who then, as you point out, later was just mad, mad about the whole thing, but she had seen the texts, um, is the alleged victim was texting around about the alleged, her alleged rape, quote, Avi, I was not innocent. And then as soon as it was over, she texted an RA saying, OMG, I just did something so fucking stupid. And the RA says, what? And she says, I effed John Doe. Well, John Doe is what we're calling the guy in this case. And the RA says, no, you didn't. She says, yes, I did. And then what did this woman who took the stand and talked about how traumatic it was for her? It was so traumatic what he did to me. What did she do when the encounter was over? She said, I was so traumatized that I, I just called a friend because I needed to be comforted. I was distraught. Yes, I happened to be a, a male friend, but you know, I needed some comfort. And it turns out um, she, she had sex with that guy too. Another guy comes over and she has sex with him. And her texts about him, I'm going to quote now, um, because she's irritated and she's texting her friend about why it's taking so long for this guy to have sex with her. And she texts, why is he just talking to me like hot girl in a slutty dress? Make your move. Yeah. And then the follow up text the next day was, OMG, action did not happen till five in the effing morning. This girl got away with ruining the first kid's life. And th- this was a case where those texts with the, with the sexual encounter with the second guy were so important because what she told the panel, and the panel seems to have believed her here, is that she was so traumatized that she had to invite a friend. And so it, for, the, for the hearing panel that found this, the, the guy guilty, they believed that you know, she had a friend and she probably cried with this person for, for the evening describing you know, her traumatized event. And when the text came out, it, it was discovered that, this was, you know, that she simply lied. And so you know, in some of these cases, you, you know, the, the accuser isn't so much lying as it's, it's a kind of ambiguous case and, and a fair process wouldn't, sure. wouldn't yield a guilty finding. But it's, this, is a, this, this was a case of malevolence. I mean, this, this was an accuser who was just simply lying out right and and again the college didn't care that how that's, did they not know, again, care i don't get it when they, i I, re- I recognize you're saying we're not going to pay attention to the text they said because they post dated the event and somehow i it's all baloney but 
I don't even understand how they could even pretextually get away with that. I, and to me, that's that's what. So, I mean, I'm a college professor. I'm an academic lifer. I've been on campus for my entire life, and I, you know, the, these are students. You know, and 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 yet colleges simply do not care. There's a, there's a kind of greater good mentality that seems to have taken root on the Title IX issue, where it's like. Yeah, maybe this John Doe and Amherst is is innocent. Maybe Grant Neal is innocent, but their their lives need to be sacrificed for a greater good of ensuring that we eradicate sexual assault on uh, mm-hmm. on campus. And if a few innocent people get punished, well, you know that's the way the cookie crumbles. And it's 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 not the way we should be looking about, at at campus justice. You know, I had a friend at Fox who uh, was tangentially related to my year with Trump coming after me and all that crazy stuff. And, you know, at the time I was not really in love with Donald Trump <laughs> and uh, not, a, not a huge fan of his back in the day, I'd say. And, um, and he was supportive of me and understood all that, but we were covering a lot of this on the Kelly file uh, right up to my last day at Fox news. And we had a very honest conversation toward the end, like right before the, the election. And he said uh, he had a young son who's going to be going off to college soon, and he was going to vote for Trump because of this. And people look back; they don't understand how he got elected. They don't. They look back; he's horrible. But look what he did to women. But 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 it's like I get all that, and I understand his flaws, and you know, real and imagined. Right? There's, there's a lot with Trump, but this is exactly what what would drive people to go. I mean, I can understand. I got two boys too. I've got a daughter and two boys. And I, and God, no, I don't want them going off to college with this system in place awaiting them. Right. Right. That's that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think that anyone who has a college age son, I have two nephews. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it, it's so transparently unfair. And I think what frustrates a lot of fair-minded people is that defenders of this, of, you know, of the Obama-Biden system that was in place, are simply impervious um, to, to to any kind of criticism. I mean, Biden has never even acknowledged any of these lawsuits. Um, uh, you know, the uh, Democratic legislators, I mean, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, has been outspoken on this. Um, in the in their minds, this is essentially a perfect system. Um, and it's, you know, it, it may be many things, but it's certainly not perfect. Um, and, you know, so yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's, and, and, you know, because if this were the criminal justice system, these trials would be public. And I think there would be, there would be uniform outrage at how blatantly unfair the, the pre-DeVos, uh, uh, uh um, hearings were, but because on campus, um, uh, you know, campus tribunals are always private because of this federal law called FERPA, which ensures that uh, uh, student uh, academic records and educational records are are, are non-public. It you, you only learn about these excesses as a result of the lawsuits that often are months or years after the fact. Mm-hmm. So, and the the other thing, the other theme I'm seeing and looking at some of the cases that did come out is how biased the supposedly impartial arbiters are toward what would become the meme, believe all women. And and that takes me to the Oberlin case where, I mean, there, there was like, that was, ex- that was made explicit. That was made explicit in a case of, of a young man who had, they met at a party in December, 2015. They had unprotected sex that night. He and, and his accuser, really didn't see each other much for the next two months. Then February, 2016, 
She drank. She texted him at one in the morning. Ladies, nothing good ever comes from that. Do not text anybody at one in the morning. Every man alive considers that a booty call. Um, said she was going to smoke some pot. And could she come up after? No man on earth has ever said no to that. He, like he understands exactly what you seem to be offering. Let's get real, right? Come on, let's get real. Um, she arrived at his his dorm, his room, one forty five in the morning. Small talk, made out, took off their clothes. Then they started having sex. Someplace in the middle of it, they stopped. She said she was thirsty. He got her some water. They resumed sex, this time without a condom. Stopped again. She said she wasn't enjoying it. She was, she was not, she was, I don't know how to put this in a way that's PG-13, but um, she, she wasn't enjoying it. Leave it at that. And, and said, I'm not sober. And then he said, how about oral sex? And she gave it to him. That oral sex is the alleged rape. Um, she wound up saying that wasn't consensual because she had said out loud, I'm not sober. And through a long, awful process, the school wound up agreeing with her. And, and, and expelled the guy. And th- this, this was a process where the Title IX coordinator at Oberlin was explicit that she saw the purpose of, these, uh, of the adjudication process as protecting the right of survivors. But of course, the goal of the process is to determine whether the complainant is a survivor. You can't just assume right. that she's a survivor in the start. And this was a case that was solely a credibility case. There were, there were, there were only these two parties, the male and the female. And the, this this was one where the the accusing student changed her story at the hearing and said that this oral sex was not only incapacitated but it was but it was force. The hearing panel didn't believe her on force, so they said that she really isn't all that credible. But then credit her or an incapacitation, even though again this this assertion of of that it's I'm not sober didn't meet the college's own definition of in, of incapacitation, and the the framing for this and this is this was something that the the Sixth Circuit, which ruled on this case, uh, stressed, is that Oberlin at the time was under investigation by the Obama era OCR for not doing enough to crack down on sexual assault, and so had mm. issued a public statement saying that that year 100 percent of the cases that were adjudicated returned a guilty finding um and so they were bragging the, about their 100 conviction about, rate right they were happy <laughs> about it that's yeah that's what the, that's what they wanted and this case was inconvenient because the guy was so obviously innocent and they nonetheless had to sort of you know the, the, they had to bastardize the facts um and you know, th- this case ultimately yields a victory oberlin then settles very quickly after the sixth circuit uh ruling but you know th- here we have a, a student whose life is put on hold for four years, um, you know that that's that's an unfairness in and of in and of itself. At a tender age, too, you know, right. it's a tender age. That transitional time from leaving your parents' house to going out there into the world, you're not yet fully cooked. You know, you you don't have all the skills you need to to handle this crazy life and all the stuff it delivers you. I mean, that's one of the purposes of college, but this is too much. And I, when I read the guy's emails. You know, they they call him John Doe, of course, in the proceeding and in, in, the, in the pleadings and so on. But he 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 was begging the person who was in charge of the process for some help. He he wasn't. It was taking way more than it was supposed to take, like way more, um, many many months. And he sent an email talking about his sleepless nights, how he developed eating problems. He was constantly thinking about this. It consumed my life. He said, "My grades have slipped." "Quote: I am a shell of my former self." And saying he could not get in contact with this guy named Josh Nolan, who was the investigator, the head person, Raimondo, had appointed to his case, who he said had seemingly disappeared. He had one one person who he was supposed to, you know, 
be able to talk to this guy, Josh Dillon, who's the investigator who wouldn't talk to him. And then the process gives each accused guy an advisor. So he did have somebody there. And that guy, Assistant Dean Adrian Bautista, why don't you explain to the audience what what a gem this person was? Yeah. This, so, And this is a guy who was appointed by Ray Bondo. So you have a system where the Title IX coordinator who, who says this should be a survivor-centric process appoints the advocate, the person who's supposed to be advocating for the accused student. In the uh, hearing, uh, uh, Bautista leaves the hearing in the middle of the process. Again, imagine a criminal trial where the lawyer just walks out halfway through. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, tweets out that he believes uh, he always believes survivors. So this was a system where where the the accused student and, and that that email that you quoted it's a poignant email because he's really trusting the college to do the right thing. He's naive in that respect. Um, the the college gives him again an obviously biased uh, 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 advocate who who it's clear from his own words didn't believe in his innocence even in a case like this where the student was was actually innocent and yeah no wonder he walked out he was like i got this one i believe all women bye (laughs) poor john doe and then here too as in the case that we just discussed at amherst so this guy gets expelled this innocent man gets expelled he appeals and one of the things he cited was newly discovered testimony from jane doe's former best friend a guy who went by the initials jb came forward when he heard that this guy had been expelled and said to the university, you made a terrible mistake. She is not telling the truth and said she and JB, JB is her ex-best friend, had a conversation right after this happened. She admitted this guy did not use force on her. And when JB got a look at the hearing testimony, he said it contradicted her story to him in many, in many ways. And, um, that he went with the woman when she first wanted to report this and sat right next to her. So he he heard her then and he was like, hmm, she's saying different things than she said to me privately. But I'm sure this investigator she's talking to is going to contact me. Right. And, th- and then that guy said, yeah, I will. I will contact you. Don't worry. Well, I'll interview you alone. Never did. So this poor kid, JB, sitting there like, oh, my God, my best friend. She's claiming to be a victim. I know her story's changing. She's lying about material stuff. Maybe they'll call me. Holy cow, he's expelled. So the guy does the right thing. He raises his hand, jumps up and down and says, she gave false testimony. And what happened? And and the and the he's, he's simply ignored the, the 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 appeals process has no interest in hearing from uh, from this. And the decision is is reiterated. And again, this is sort of like the Amherst case where you ask yourself, how can how can the institution be indifferent to what is clear evidence that they got the original decision wrong, um, and and yet in here as as an Amherst they they were. And this student, you know, the, the guy who, who who spoke up, this JB, you, you know, this took a considerable amount of courage on his part. You know, he, he's you know he's existing on a campus where there's where there's very strong pressure to believe the the woman again. You know, for 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 understandable reasons in a broad respect, he knows in this particular case that the woman is lying, um, and he takes some risk in going forward. I'm sure he lost some friends as a result of, mm-hmm. of what he did, and yet the college doesn't reward that courage at all. They basically say, you know, we don't care. We'll get back to Casey Johnson in just one second. I'm going to talk to him about if we impose these standards again on young men facing charges on college campuses, the Obama-Biden standards from 11 and 14. um, Why shouldn't Joe Biden have to face those same standards? 
with all the accusations that have been hurled against him. Let's see how he likes it. Right. Um, that'll be an interesting discussion. Stay tuned for that. Before we get back to that, I want to talk about Jan Marini skincare research. Uh, you got to understand this company makes beautiful, lovely, high end products for your skin. And it's one of the fastest growing professional skincare brands in the country. Uh, the products are used on movie sets and TV production sets currently on the set of Spider-Man, Riverdale and more. But more importantly than that, it's just this beautiful, clean, elegant five-step daily system that will cleanse, rejuvenate, resurface, hydrate, and protect your skincare. It's been awarded 10 consecutive years um, as by New Beauty Magazine as the best skincare system for aging skin. And uh, it's got an excellent range of proven and award-winning solutions to reduce the appearance of fine lines, of wrinkles, discoloration. That's starting to happen. Who the hell foresaw that? Discoloration. I thought that was only for like 70-year-olds. <laughs> Apparently, it can come to a 50-year-old too. Uh, your adult acne and more. Um, you can go ahead and go to jammarini.com if you want to check out before and after images and see, you know, see if you're impressed. You can take their online consultation too to find your best solutions. So check out their products. They're hydrating. They're calming. They've got numerous clinical studies conducted by leading dermatologists behind them. You can get them at leading spas or med spas, aesthetic physicians offices, or just go to janmarini.com to find locations or purchase them right from the website. You can go now and they're featuring our special offer if you do. If you go to janmarini.com and use code Megan, M-E-G-Y-N, you will receive a free cosmetic bag with your order. That's janmarini.com, code M-E-G-Y-N. Enjoy it. And now, before we get back to Casey Johnson, uh, we're going to bring you a feature now we call Asked and Answered here on the program, where we get into some of our listener questions. And our executive producer, Steve Krakauer, has got today's question. Hey, Steve. Hey, Megan. This is a good one. It comes to us from one of our younger listeners, I would say, a college student named Mason Stefancic. He emailed questions at devilmaycaremedia.com, and you can too. Mason wants to know, he's a junior at college in Colorado, and he's wondering your thoughts on whether college is even worth it right now. He says, do you think there will be a transition from the workforce valuing a degree in 10 years or less? That's a great question. College is so expensive. And I feel like as a parent of three kids who will be in college at some point, um, not only are they so expensive, but they're going to indoctrinate my kids into beliefs I don't share and try to turn them against me. Uh, and then they'll get out with a bunch of debt. My kids won't. Let's be honest. I'll pay for their college. But most most kids will. And a job that doesn't come near to covering the loans. So it's I get why you're asking the question. I would still say it's worth it. That's my own personal opinion. But I wouldn't pay all that money like for a Harvard like if, if I were funding my own college education, I would look for a state school that's got a good reputation, maybe in the city or the state where I want to be, you know, because that always works well. Like I went to Albany Law School, which is certainly not like the greatest law school ever made. But for New York State, it's amazing. And I was competing with all the Harvard and Yale and University of Chicago law graduates for those top jobs in New York City because they were familiar with Albany Law. Right. So you could you could say the same thing for colleges you know, undergraduate colleges, sort of be strategic is what I'm saying. I also think you need to gird yourself for the ideological battle ahead and just understand what they're going to be doing to you. And I, I have this debate all the time with one of my close friends. Do you, do you tell your kid to go along to get along? Do you tell him to pretend to be a liberal so that he gets an A instead of like challenging these far left ideas and get a C? That's an individual choice, right? You better be really, really likable if you're going to do the latter. 
or you could just play the game and get through. Either way, it's bullshit, right? It's bullshit that people who don't have far left views have to even think about this stuff. I'll end with this. I met what I said earlier. I do think that those are tender years. And when I think back on my college experience, and granted, it wasn't too far left in its indoctrination. I actually had a wonderful four-year stint at Syracuse in many ways. I think back on my social experiences more than ever. I wish I had the, had the Douglas Murray you know, experience of reading these books and feeling connected with history and coming to the realization I wasn't the only one to ever have these thoughts. And that sounds amazing. Maybe you get that at the Ivies. I wouldn't know. Um, but I do think sort of the coming of age that happens in those four years is wonderful. It's wonderful. Living away from home for the first time, being surrounded by people your age, and it's incredibly social and fun. And, you know, you have tons of friends, you know, you're just surrounded by tons of, in my case, girlfriends. And then, you know, I fell in love and it was just like between my close girlfriends and the, and the, the boyfriend I had for most of my college years who really changed my life. I wouldn't give that back for anything. It was, it was transformational for me as a person, as a human. So yeah, I mean, that was my experience. I realized things have changed a lot. And I will say this, I don't think that you needed to get a degree, to get a job. I really don't. I think a lot of people, especially on the right half of the country, are not seeing that four-year college degree as necessarily an asset. Um, I think, you know, you could strategically come up with a different plan that might serve you better in getting a job. Uh, if you want to work at a place like Fox <laughs> or I don't know, any of these entrepreneurs too, I think they're smart. They understand scrappiness better than they they may just a big degree from an expensive school. And like, you don't want to be turned into a nerd, right? Like, I don't know. Like, EQ is important in life too, people, right? Like good grades are good, but you need to be able to function in this world in a way that where people like you, they want to be with you. You have a sense of humor. You understand social sports, uh, forgive me, and other references. And that's another thing you can work out in college. So it's not all about the academic payoff. So that's my long way of saying, I think it's worth it depending on the cost. I think go, go for the cheaper school, be strategic about it. But um, I wouldn't rule it off on principle yet. Thanks for the question, Mason. Now back to Casey. There was another case that happened. Gosh, was it Brandeis? Where it was two, two, two gay men, lovers yes. for the better part of two years in a romantic, sexual, consensual relationship. They break up four months later. One decides after attending sexual assault training sessions that his thinking was changing and that, in fact, he had been the victim of numerous inappropriate non-consensual sexual interactions over the 21 months he'd been with this other guy. Now, that's not impossible, I guess. You know, it's po so let's walk us through it. What, you know, what happened? And what sorts of complaints was he raising? This is just it's it's a truly incredible case. He, you know, the, the, the the accused student was 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 given no notice. The, the 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 complaint filed was two sentences basically saying my entire affair, my entire relationship was was non-consensual. And the the uh, the accused student, again, another one of these John Doe's was found guilty of, among other things, um, looking at his then boyfriend in the nude in the bathroom without asking advance permission. Or oh my God, that's called a relationship. His, it's called a relationship. Or waking his then boyfriend, uh, you know, in the morning with kisses. And by this definition of sexual assault, virtually any married couple in the country would have committed sexual assault at one point or another. It, it was an extraordinary case because the investigator in in this 
there was no hearing at all in the, in the Brandeis case, basically decided to ignore context entirely. And what she did was to interpret each of these events as if these two students were meeting for the first time. So obviously, if you if you have someone who you don't know and you look at them in the nude without asking me, it's a peeping Tom case or something like that, that's that's sexual misconduct. But this was not what was going on here. It's not this a peeping a Tom. Right. right. They were t- they were together for almost two years. And, and you know, the, the testimony in the case was that it was a relatively good relationship until right near the end. And then it was it, then it was a breakup. So it was a, it was a factually absurd case. And yet again, we had a guilty finding. This this guy was not expelled, but his name leaked out and he wound up losing an internship and then a job as a result of, oh uh, of this decision. So again, there there was a discrete harm as a result of, of this absurd approach. And you know, we talked in the Oberlin case about the, the you know the, these appeals. This guy appeals too because he says, look, this this is an obviously unfair process. And in the appeal, Brandeis refuses to give him the investigator's report on which he was found guilty. So he was quite literally appealing blind. He had no way of knowing, you know, what, oh you know, God. so of, of course the appeal was, uh, was, was denied. And the, in this was the case, the, 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 the judge in this case, a judge named Dennis Saylor, um, said that to him, this process more resembled Salem in 1692 than, you know, than Boston in the 2010s. And I thought that, that was a pretty appropriate comment. Mm-hmm. I know. I'm just looking through the allegations. Jo- uh, the the accused would look at the accuser's private areas when they were showering together. Okay, so I got an idea. I have a, I have a tip for you, accuser. And then um, John, that's the accused, would occasionally wake up JC, that's the accuser, by kissing him, and sometimes persisted when JC wanted to go back to sleep. Oh my God, that's marriage. If, if, I, if I were the, the victim of a sexual assault, every time Doug woke me up and persisted when I want to go back to sleep. Are you kidding me? We've actually had a long talk. I've said, honey, you don't want me under those conditions. Trust me. Because when I, when you actually do get me woken up, I'm just going to be grumpy. It's not going to be good for either one of us. What In what weird world is it when a consensual relationship where somebody persists a little after an initial like, I'm too tired, turns into assault, but it's happening and it's getting blessed by grownups who aren't completely drunk. Right, right, right. That's that's the thing. I mean, you know, the, these are 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 conscious, deliberate decisions by the uh, university administrators. Um, and 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 the only reason we know about it is that you know, this student had enough money, at least, to hire a lawyer. And the, the lawyer in the Brandeis case was a really good one in this area and file this lawsuit. You ask yourself how many students, you know, basically accept this because they can't get into federal court. Federal court is expensive. I mean, these lawsuits cost tens and, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and so it, it's it's a very very troubling uh, uh, process. Just looking through the procedures that Brandeis had put in place um, after the 11 and the 14 communications from the Obama team, um, the accused, they had eliminated a hearing of any kind. Instead, they had instituted a special examiner who was going to conduct the investigation and decide the case. Okay, great. What, what could possibly go wrong with having the person who is the investigator also be the judge, jury, and executioner? Um, it was secret. The accused was not entitled to know the details of the charges. The accused was not entitled to see the evidence. The accused was not entitled to counsel. The accused was not entitled to confront and cross-examine the accuser, not entitled to cross-examine any witness. The special examiner prepared the report, which the accused was not permitted to see until the entire process had concluded. And then the special examiner's decision was final with limited appellate review. I mean, 
how has this not been a front page story everywhere? I mean, how is this even happening in the United States of America? And the one good thing we have is Orange Man Bad came in and reversed it. And now the sweet, sleepy Joe, he's a moderate. He's not going to do anything radical. Don't worry. That's the lunatic fringe on the, you know, he's going to ignore them. Not only does he want to reverse it all again, it's just like first action item. It's on like day one. He said, I'm going to get after this. And and he's trying. Right. So he really is trying. Oh, yes, he's he's trying. And I think there there's almost no doubt that he that he will succeed in this effort. He is someone who is deeply committed to this on a personal level. It, it, you know, this is someone whose views on a whole swath of issues have changed over the course of his career. But in this area, he is uh, you know, he's consistent. And and the great irony is pointed out earlier, under the system that he wants to impose on the nation's college male students, he almost certainly would have been found guilty. And, and not just in the Tara Reid case, but in all of these other cases where women came up and said that he was touching their hair and doing, you know, uh, uncomfortable things. And, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 his career would have been over. I and mean, one of the the most incredible things to me from the Reid case, um, his, you know, the, his campaign issued a statement saying that it was the job of the media to ask, you know, really hard questions of Reid. But that's that's exactly what he wants to deny to students uh, accused in these Title IX proceedings. So you get this incredible uh, double standard where, you know, a person running for the nation's most powerful office gets fairer treatment than an accused student who has, you know, really no backing, no political support, no media support, no functioning support at at all. Um, you know, I, I had assumed that after the Reid allegation, he would sort of realize that due process does matter and maybe you want to make sure you have a system where the accused has a chance to defend himself, but he has he has he has doubled down on this earlier policies. And and of the cases we've discussed, I mean, that Amherst one is really, God, it's awful, right? It's just yeah. so awful with a woman in the text and like, Avi, yeah. I wasn't innocent. And here's the next guy who I'm going to have sex with 14 minutes after my alleged assault and all this stuff. Can you tell us, I know there's an, there's an update on the investigator who oversaw that case. Correct. So the, the investigator in that case, who was a, a, a labor lawyer and education lawyer from, from outside Boston, was subsequently hired by other colleges and universities in Massachusetts, uh, most prominently Williams College, another you know, excellent school in, in Western Massachusetts, to train their Title IX coordinators. Oh. So it, you know, in, a, in, a, in a sane world, you would have someone who, who was saying, you know, we don't care about, I don't care about evidence of, of innocence from these texts, because by that point, the accuser hadn't decided she was, she was sexually assaulted. So all of this exculpatory evidence doesn't matter. That this person would would never be involved in another Title IX proceeding again. Not only mm-hmm. was she you continued to be hired by Amherst, but she's now she's now training other words. And 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 I think that's that's a good you know, illustration into the mindset in some of these cases, even in these terrible cases, you know, like Brandeis and Amherst and Oberlin and and the Grant Neal State uh, case at Colorado State. The people who who mistreat these accused students almost never suffer any adverse career prospects and mm. you know so so there's 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 basically no deterrent to it's, to a kangaroo court it's so messed up and and what's the consequence of being okay so you get expelled or i mean in all the cases i've been looking at it's like expelled almost all the time but let's say it's some penalty short of expelled do they get labeled do they get labeled in any way that haunts them the the men they do. And th- this is, I think, one of the things that this is a newish policy. I mean, we've, it's only been around for, for a decade or so. So, so you know, in, in these cases, 
their chances of going to graduate school, if they want to go to graduate school or to law school or to med school, are basically zero because you have to re, you have to divulge that you've been found guilty of sexual misconduct. If you project ahead a little further, any job that requires a background check later on in their careers, they'll have to divulge that. And I mean, most businesses, for I think quite understandable reasons, aren't going to hire someone who's who's saying I've been found guilty of sexual assault. You would assume that's reasonable. That's insane. But by it's a insane. kangaroo court, as you point out, by it's not like you court. were found guilty in a court with real evidence, evidentiary. Right standards. Right. But, the, you know, so so you have a situation where where these are, are basically life altering and lifelong punishments. And for the students who are expelled, their chances of getting admitted to another school, certainly another school at an equivalent level, in some cases, another school at all are zero. And if you think of how the American economy is changing, a college degree is, you know, it's, it's increasingly critical. So these are decisions that, you know, over the course of their lives are going to cost these these students, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in earning potential going to close off careers. And of course, if they're guilty, they think they deserve this and, and more. The problem is that you have a system that really doesn't distinguish from, from the innocent, from the, from the guilty. Why Is there any way in which we can just get these hearings off of the college campuses, like out of their hand? This is, this is, this doesn't even seem like a disaster that's fixable, even under the DeVos rules. I mean, is there any alternative there are alternatives. So one of the things that DeVos did that uh, you know I think was was really quite commendable and got less attention is that it allows informal mediation. It allows this this process called restorative justice. So basically, finding a way to to handle these cases without a black mark on the accused student, but maybe in a way that satisfies the interests of uh, of accusers. So that I think is the first the first possibility. Basically, making them non adjudicative as um, uh, as a whole, lowering the stakes. Um, in terms of getting them fully off campus, though, I think there there is there is no chance. There you know there's the Supreme Court decision from the 1990s um, called the Davis decision, and in that decision, the Supreme Court said that schools can be held liable if they are indifferent, deliberately indifferent, uh, to sexual uh, misconduct by one student against another student at the school. So schools can't simply say, all right, you know, turn this over to the civil system, turn this over to the criminal justice system, we're going to wash our hands, because if they did that, they would be liable to lawsuits from victims. So schools basically have to do it. So the key is to find ways to, to basically force them to do it fairly, because they really, really don't want to do fair investigations in this area. If if the DeVos rules stand, because it did catch my eye that it seems to be optional whether they use a preponderance of the evidence standard versus clear and convincing. If if the rules stand, must they afford more due process or is it optional for the most part? They, they must. So the only optional item in the DeVos rules are the stand is the standard of proof, and all schools have chosen uh, preponderance. So that hasn't been a change. But uh, they must provide a hearing. They must provide cross examination. They must provide access to the evidence, and they must provide unbiased training for the uh, for the panelists. And so you know it's not a perfect system. I mean, schools don't have discovery power. So you have the situation where an accused student might know that there's evidence, text evidence, for instance, that that will exonerate him, but you can't actually subpoena it. But it's a much fairer system uh, than uh, than existed previously. And one of the reasons I think the DeVos regs were so good is that they basically, apart from the standard of proof issue, they denied discretion to the colleges, um, you know, because, because I think what she recognized is that if you give colleges lots of choice in this area, they're always going to choose the process that that yep. will minimize due process. 
So what, you know, you say you have two nephews who are going to go off to college. What, what is your advice for young men heading off to college when it comes to sexual encounters? Like, let's get real. What, what should they be thinking? In a troubling kind of way, the, you, there, although there are occasional cases that involve allegations from non-students, um, you know, for the most part, this this is an area. As long as the DeVos regulations are there, I think that there is at least some fairness. But if these regulations get repealed and we move back to the Obama-Biden approach, it's almost a situation where you have to know going in that any sexual encounter risks the possibility of one of these filings. So it requires extraordinary care, at least if you're going to have any kind of sexual relationship with with a student, because because the whole process is so arbitrary. You can have a hundred cases with an identical set of facts, you know, drunk students with a you know, one night uh, uh, hookup. 99 of those cases, the students will move on with, with their lives with no problem. In the 100th case, however, it will, it will result in one of, these, one of these proceedings. So the only way you can basically always avoid these proceedings is to avoid any kind of sexual contact on campus at all. And that's not a realistic um, mm-hmm. uh, approach. And so, you know, the other is to be very careful and I think, you know, to be very, very careful with with alcohol, um, because the, you, know, the, you know, everyone does things, you know, when when they're drinking that they might not do, uh, you know, when when they're sober. And if you make a mistake here, again, we're not assuming that the that it's guilty. It's just a, a mistake that triggers a charge. It can be a life altering event, and you can really never get out from under it. Mm, that is terrifying. The whole point of like, you know, not doing anything dumb when you're when you've been drinking um, is because your judgment's impaired, right? Your judgment's impaired. So so but like once you've had a couple of beers, your judgment's already impaired. And if you're thinking about it at that point, it's too late. So you almost it's have to late. decide if I'm drinking tonight, I'm not gonna hook up. Like, but Correct. that doesn't Correct. seem realistic. I mean, it's been a long time since yeah. I was in college, but that doesn't seem realistic. I really think like I want to talk to my fellow women. I want to talk to like young co-eds and say, girls, number one, don't be a hoe. <laughs> That's number one. <laughs> that was my rule for myself. It served me very well. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy the college life and hook up where you feel it and want to do it. That's all good. But like be discriminating and and own your own behavior, you know, and, and, and that doesn't mean accepting sexual assault or harassment. Absolutely not. It means getting real about your own choices and and whether we're really talking about an assault or a harassment situation, because if you, you claim that when it didn't really happen, you undermine all the women to whom it actually did. Correct. Correct. And that, you know, that's that's what the, the 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 jilted girlfriend in the Amherst case, I think, recognized that, you know, if if if, if what occurred in Amherst is defined as sexual assault, the net result of this is that no one will believe you know victims of sexual assault because you know the, the assumption is that 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 malevolence can be can be a justified approach for for a victim and you know that's so it's it, the, the the cultural redefinition here is is a really problematic uh, one well i do think you know alcohol plays a huge role especially with the guys because i saw this myself in in the in the college age and the like sports teams and so on, the drunker they get, the more inappropriate they get. And they do increase the risk. I wouldn't say it would make a non-rapist a rapist in a lot of cases, but there's no question that young men need to take responsibility for their behavior too and watch the amount of alcohol they consume and how it changes their inhibitions and to understand that physically they're absolutely in the power position when it comes to the young women on campuses. They are, and they have to take responsibility for that and be extra careful about it. 
Right. I, I think that's that's 100% correct. What now? Like, what should we, we be watching Biden do? Like, to, to stay up on whether this is going to get undone, he's going to try to change the rules, people can speak up and comment to try to stop that. You said there were over 100,000 comments on the DeVos rule changes. What's next for those of us paying attention to this fight? I think there are, there are two areas. The first is that only you know, there's one of these lawsuits that were filed against the DeVos rules by, um, you know, by a, a, a coalition of blue states where the, the Biden administration in, in its most recent filing seems to be suggesting that it might try to use this lawsuit to get rid of the regulations. The state of Texas, ironically, is, is uh, uh, trying to intervene to defend the regulations. And so one question will be whether this lawsuit is, 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 a, is, a, is an, a vehicle for Biden to basically make a favorable settlement with these blue states and agree to get rid of the the regulations. I suspect the court will look um, uh, unfavorably on that, but but again, we don't know. These filings have been been quite recent. The second is once a full team in the education department have, has been uh, announced, I suspect what we will see, again, if, this, if the litigation side doesn't work out for them, will be an announcement that they are going to issue new rules, basically, to, to replace the DeVos rules. And, and if that occurs, um, I, I think it will occur relatively quickly. Um, they would want these new rules to be in place by the start of the academic year. So I would be looking for something in the next month or or two because colleges for you know don't want to change their their regulation, their their procedures in the middle of the year. So you know within the next few months, I think we should have a pretty clear sense of what Biden is intending to do. And I suspect what we will hear from from them will be regulations that basically just re- return to the 2011 uh, era and mm-hmm. pretend that all of these court cases don't uh, don't exist. And that's a risky approach for Biden because I, I would assume there will be legal challenges, but um, I, I think we'll see I, action I mean, pretty quickly. I love the point you made, though. That's I think it's great. You want to go back to 2011, 2014 standard? Let's do it. And let's apply the exact same standards to you and not just Tara <laughs> Reid's allegations against you, but all the women. Let's just see whether the unwanted touching you unleashed on several young women on tape would pass muster under these standards and in these courts that you're about to bless. Let's do it. And and everyone goes down or up together. I mean, he doesn't. He wouldn't. It it infuriates me. But he but he's going to allow the the lives of young men, you know, like the ones we've been talking about. They're not all innocent. We all know that. Uh, to be ruined, based on what? Based on accusations in some instances from people who never should have had a day in court. Casey Johnson, I have to tell you, I really appreciate all the work and study you've been doing on this for years and years and years. And uh, come back, okay? Let's keep an eye on it. Thank you very much. Today's episode was brought to you in part by Norton 360 with LifeLock. Protect yourself from cybercrime with the top trusted ally in today's connected world. Go to Norton.com slash MK to learn more. And don't forget to tune in to the show on Wednesday because we're going to be talking impeachment with Alan Dershowitz. Looking forward to that. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megan Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures.